Um, I thought uh, today we'd go ahead. I know we're talking about uh, commercial uh, investing here today and also talking about uh, stagflation, current state of the economy, how it's going to impact what we have going on with commercial investing. Um, I'm looking uh, for today as we go through, Charles, I'm going to let you go ahead and turn the mic over to you to let you uh, go ahead and start with um, giving us uh, the uh, amazing information that you brought to the table here today. And then if we have questions, we'll just go ahead and drop them into the chat. And maybe at the end we do a Q&A. Um, that was a format that I kind of had in mind for us today, Charles, working with you. I didn't know if there was a different format or a different way that you found um, that it works better for you in terms of getting the information across. Yeah, either way is fine for me. Um, <clears throat> the presentation that I have today is going to be um, notes based on the topics that I uh, presented to you. And then if you have uh, questions you want to ask me, we can use that as the interview process. Perfect. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, right. Excellent. So let's go ahead and um, and kick off uh, here today, guys. So as we have uh, questions or anything, uh, questions, comments, anything, let's go ahead and push all of that into the chat while Charles is uh, presenting here today. And Charles is going to see those pop up too. So if there's something in there that pops up for him that says, hey, great, that's actually, I should delve into more detail there. He's going to see that pop up on his screen and he'll know to be able to um, have that option to be able to jump into that. Um, and then at the very end, at the end of it, um, uh, when Charles is wrapped up, we'll be able to have a, a Q&A portion here to be able to ask Charles some questions or otherwise do that, uh, that interview kind of process uh, to be able to uh, delve deeper into this, the work that Charles does and, and form a deeper relationship with Charles for anybody here that uh, feels that they would benefit in uh, moving forward with, with that kind of uh, relationship. Um, so Charles, thank you so much for joining us here uh, today. Of course, this is um, the Royal Legal Solutions community. Um, we're all real estate investors here and, and active in the real estate game. So, um, you know, we're not in the, the very beginning stages uh, of this, but I don't think any of us are, are uh, experts in commercial real estate. Um, exactly. And a few of us have, um, or quite a few of us will have uh, some uh, commercial real estate um, investing experience. So just to give you an idea uh, of, of the audience, you know, like what level uh, is appropriate to speak at so you don't lose people. Um, and if we get too far into the weeds on it, I'm sure everybody will be like, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit before we, we continue on. So thanks for coming in. And I was wondering, Charles, what do you think would be like important uh, for us to know about you and your experience um, that you bring to the table today as kind of your background in supporting um, the analysis uh, that you're going to be that you're presenting on today? Sure. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s, which was the last time that we actually witnessed stagflation as a nation and its impacts on our economy. So if you can remember the long gas lines, the shortages of supplies, the interest rates rising, gold, removing ourselves from the gold standard, becoming a fiat currency, all of those things transpired. And I was politically acute at a very young age. And I, I watched this with amazement. Um, then I've been a real estate broker since 1992. And I've operated in San Diego, Las Vegas, and now Durham, North Carolina. So I've been in three very distinct markets at three times in their histories where each one of them exploded. So I've been very lucky picking my locations. <clears throat> with regards to the investing um, that I do for my clients, my, my company is a one-stop shop. So um, we identify the investment for the client. We then uh, manage the contract to closing. 
I have a property management company. We take the property under management and we remove the tenants from the property. I own a development company. We go in and we do a full rehab on the property. You know, it could be a simple turn or it could be much more uh, detailed where we are involving the architects and the um, mechanical engineers, et cetera, and going off a full set of draft plans. Um, once we've uh, remodeled the property, raised the rents, we then use the property management company to reinstate new tenants at the higher valuations. And then we will exchange the property when the property is stabilized and move on to a higher density for the client. We also have a lawn care and maintenance company that I own that provide these services during that process of tenancy um, until we uh, no longer have the property. So that's my background. I'm a, I, I manage all of those things. I have companies that control all of those things. And um, my general contractor has been with me 25 years. So he outlasted my wife. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Well, I was, I was kind of curious of that, uh, Charles, like who are the who are the typical people that you're doing business with right now? Like what are the, what are the types of issues that people have um, and that you that when you work with them, you really like knock it out of the park for them for what it is, that, uh, who they are, what it is they're going after? Uh, we have the traditional value add investor. Um, and I like to work with people that have a portfolio of between, you know, two and $10 million. That's my bread and butter. <clears throat> and with regards to um, the value add concept, um, you know, that, that, that begins with smaller properties. And then as you progress the client through the density, it becomes larger properties. Um, but then you get to a point in the market where there's just no more inventory to flip and turn and squeeze more rents out of. And at that point, you have to move on to the next page of the playbook, which is condominiumization. And so you look at the valuations of the core downtown area and extrapolate a condo valuation based on what the rents are in that region. And then search out rental properties that you can buy and then convert into condos and sell on the open market to owner occupants. So you kind of transition the client through that process. So they have to be a little more sophisticated than your, your novice or you know, first time investor to really be able to grasp what you're trying to do for them. Excellent. Okay. So it's kind of like taking it about like, where are the economic cycles that currently say like, well, great. Well, depending on the purchase right. price and rentals, does it make sense for us to buy this and then continue to rent it out? Or if prices are like, as prices escalate, then, Hey, at that point, your rental income isn't going to make sense in terms of what your purchase prices are. So actually just chop up all of those individual units, turn them into condos and then sell them with bank financing to investors or whoever else is going to buy those. And so you're just playing the game in the market of like, where are prices and where are rents? And like, depending upon where those are at, is going to tell you what strategy you're end up doing at that time. Or do you see it a little That's different? Right. And then for the equity uh, partners that we work with, companies that have between 20 and $100 million, we search out development opportunities for them. So we'll find tracts of land where we can go through a rezoning process and put together, you know, uh, one, 200 units, you know, something like that. Um, so, you know, that's like the third leg of that cycle that we talk that you were talking about the first two being value add condominium last being development and then usually by the time you get to that stage um we're going to have some kind of pullback in the market and you start all over again there you go yeah and just one it just turns in one cycle after the other right 
Right. So where, where do you see that we're at? I mean, right now is kind of an interesting time, right? I mean, I think that we started to see what we were noticing here as an investing community is that listen, most of the properties that we're running into, um, they're now getting priced out. Of, there's so much competition in the market. There's not enough rental income to make the cap rates make a lot of sense for um, opportunities that are there right now. Combining that with saying, hey, we got rising inflationary, uh, you all have to do is like go to the grocery store, look at the gas pump to be able to say, hey, what's going on with our inflation? Um, and uh, and how aggressively it looks like the Fed is actually increasing rates. I think they actually just did a big rate increase uh, here here shortly, here recently. Um, well, how do you, when you look at the economic data that's important to you about, hey, what, what enforcement needed to do next? Are, are those the, the kinds of critical pieces of information that you see um, uh, that are most important to pay attention to? And, and what else should we be paying attention to um, that we're not right now? No, you're absolutely right. Those are the key economic indicators that I'm paying attention to. And if you recall the last uh, end of the upward cycle that we achieved prior to the Great uh, Recession, we had a, a, a peak in uh, price appreciation in, in 2006. And then through 2006, seven and eight, we still saw a, a fairly high number of transactions. But if anything, the price points were moderating. And then we finally had the, 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 the peak crash cycle. So we're, we're at that point of disconnect right now, where the seller's mind still says, well, my property was a four cap last year. It's got to be a three and a half this year. And therefore, they price it over the market. Then you have the buyer that says, well, things are slowing down. Rates are increasing. We're headed for a recession. If it was a four cap last year, it's got to be a five cap this year. And that disconnect between the two parties is what's going to slow the transactional volume down. So that's the first indicator. You're going to see transactional volume slowing down. And at that point, what you really need to do is, is counsel the client, whether it's the seller or the buyer, a little bit differently. But on the buyer side, let them know that you know a good deal is a good deal no matter what point you are on the market. And if we could get this property at the price we needed to get at to fit our model, then it's still a good property. On the seller side, you have to explain that you know you were at this price. You're now at that price. You can chase the market down, but are you willing to be a bridesmaid in perpetuity or would you like to be a bride? Yeah. And, and when you look at that, and you're counseling people um, through like the current economic conditions that exist for us. You know, if we have the velocity is, is slowing down with the number of transactions um, that are occurring. Um, when you look at like when you look at rising interest rates and slowing down of the velocity of transactions, uh, I, it was always a tricky question about like, well, what do we expect to happen with actual pricing? Because some people would say, hey, well, pricing should be able to stay consistent because we actually have increased, we have so much demand, pent up demand inside of the market of people trying to move into move into places, right? Or move into single family homes, right? And then there's other people that say, well, listen, as you have increased interest rates, though, now the, you're going to have actually, you're going to have less demand because there's less, actually less buyers in the market that can actually qualify, even though they would want to buy, they're not going to be able to because their DTI ratios and other ratios aren't going to make sense for them with the higher interest rates. So pricing like has to fall. Um, is there any, 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 any thought that you give to that, to that kind of speculation, or do you view that as all like crystal? No, ball I'll, I'll, that, that, that process is supported by the banking institutions. As long as the credit is flowing, 
then you can you can have those transactions still happen. But once the DSRs on the transactions get to a point that's unpalatable to the institutional lenders, then you will see that drive up. And it doesn't regardless how much demand there is. If you don't have capital, you're not going to be able to make the deal happen. And, and that's why we'll see the transactional volume declining. Okay. Well, so you'll see transactional volume declining, um, but as long as like there's liquidity from the banks to be able to still offer loans, you would s- still think like, hey, pieces, people are still going to be making deals um, and that we should see pricing for our real estate stay consistent for what it is well, now, but yeah. maybe just not increasing. Well, no, it will increase. And, and here's why. And, and, and so I'm just saying that we're in, a, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a lull here, but the lull will break out. And the reason it will break out is because of the trend that we're heading into. And it's not a trend that's going to be led by what we're used to, which is higher economic growth. Um, we're going to be led into a trend that I call stagflation. I don't call it stagflation. It's defined as stagflation, but it fits the mold that we're the model that we are now in. And, can, can you define sorry. that for us? Because I don't know. I, I don't know. It's been a while since I took my macroeconomics course. I learned about Keynesian theory and stagflation and how that can happen. Can you can you define that out for us a little bit? Sure. Um, stagflation is when the inflation rate is high, the economic growth is slowing, and unemployment is rising. So that, in a nutshell, that is that is the definition. So what we have right now is inflation that is on the rise, but the inflation is not on the rise simply because of demand. As a matter of fact, the rate increases by the Federal Reserve are creating demand destruction. So you can see the month-over-month indicators as far as um, you know, our economic activity slowing, but the prices are still going up. And that's because it's a supply chain issue and it's an energy issue because the cost of transporting goods halfway around the world is increasing the final price that we're paying for the product. <laughs> On the... Uh, economic growth side where we're seeing growth slow that's a combination of a couple of things that we have here right now one of which is the labor participation rate it's at a, at a low point which has caused our wages to go up and because our wages have gone up we can't hire as many people as we used to because each person we're hiring is costing us more dollars and then on the um, unemployment side because we can't higher, more bodies because the rate we're paying each body has gone up. It's going to cause unemployment to flatten and then eventually start to rise. So that's the economic impact of stagflation and the definition. Excellent, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for giving that recap. So, um, so tell us, um, Charles, like what, what's important for us to know, like next in this conversation, is it, is it most important for us to then talk about like how, how in stagflation, uh, types of economies, like what we should expect to have with our, what we should expect to have with our real estate investing and like other investments to be able to know what we should be doing right now? Or what do you think is the I, next I, best place this comes We use history as our guide here. And so the, the greatest periods of stagflation that we can look back on were the periods from 1970 to 1980. And if we look at those, um, uh, reasons why we were having stagflation. They're very, very similar to what we're dealing with right now. The United States was in the process of outsourcing a lot of its labor in the form of manufacturing. We were transitioning from a uh, manufacturing-based economy to a service-based economy because it was supposed to be less uh, uh, susceptible to recession. Um, we were having a severe energy crisis on a global scale. Um, and then we had economic, or excuse me, we had geopolitical unrest. So all of those same key factors that were in place then are in place today. Um, On top of that, we have a very expensive federal government and a very high amount of debt service, 
which is causing um, the, the Federal Reserve to have kept interest rates low for a very protracted period of time, which kind of takes bullets out of their chamber, right? And so historically, you would fight things like a recession or stagflation or high unemployment with rate decreases. But in this case, they're using rate increases to create demand destruction to kill inflation. So the tools that would normally be used to fight a recession or to fight inflation are at cross purposes when you're dealing with stagflation. And so it creates kind of a quagmire that the only result that, that you know, what worked in the past was cutting government spending, lowering interest rates, increasing energy production. That's how, you know, we were able to get out of it the last time. So if policy gets to that point down the road, great, we'll get out of it. But while we're in it, real estate has was one of the best perform as an asset class. It was the best performing asset class. And we can look at the rate of increase in rents. Median rents increased from 1970 to 1975, a total of 44%. And from 70 to 1980, they increased a total of 125%. And as a result, the, 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 the prices that investors were willing to pay on those investments caused those investments to go up. And on the investment side, from 1970 to 75, we saw a 60% increase in value. And from 1970 to 1980, we saw a 165% increase in value. Wow. So it, it, is that is that that's predicated, uh, if I understand you correctly, that's predicated on the issue of saying like, well, we will have to see we'll have to see probably unemployment itself increase, but we should see wages increase. And when wages increase, then we'll see that the rents are able to increase. Because my understanding of it right now is that like, well, you won't, you can't see rents increase because people can't get wages to rise fast enough to be able to. Rates are going to increase. The rates aren't going to be driven by wages. At this stage, we have a housing shortage. And as a result, population growth is going to drive rent increases, regardless of wage inflation. Oh, okay. So you think as, as, a pop, as a pure population issue, we'll have demand because there will just be so many more people uh, seeking to be able to rent. And on the supply side, we're not building as much because the cost to build is so high. Yeah. So we'll have like, so cap supply, you're saying cap supply and increased demand because of population growth should mean that rents have to increase. Yeah, we have started out at a point where it's already at an imbalance, where we have a housing shortage. And then as that shortage, the gap doesn't close because production of new homes doesn't accelerate. Production of new rentals doesn't accelerate. Just population growth itself is going to cause that incremental increase on a regular basis. And then you do have the backdrop of inflation that is going on the whole time. Wow. So I was just seeing Brendan uh, chime into the sound says, oh, man, it looks like renters are going to get squeezed. It's like they're getting squeezed yeah. with a higher proportion of their income having to go to rent. They're probably also getting squeezed because all of the things that they typically buy now are costing more. And like they're, they probably won't. They're, they're just getting they're, Everybody now is going to get poorer. But the real estate investors should be okay because yes. because of just the macroeconomic issues that are pushing. That that that's what historically the cycles represented for us. The 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 wage worker that is a renter sees significant increases in their wages. Like what we saw during COVID, government pumped tons of money into the system, and everybody was able to uh, stock away a lot of money. Some people made money in the stock market, some people didn't. But at the the result is there is still a fair amount of liquidity in, in, in the economy, right? There's still a fair amount of savings. 
still a fair amount of asset uh, equity. And so those renters will deplete their um, savings equity over the course of time. And yes, they will be squeezed. Interesting. Well, very, very cool. So Charles, if we understand that those are the, the macroeconomic conditions uh, that uh, you you see and you believe that are going to drive and make it real estate investing um, so powerful for us in the future, um, where do you where do you typically where do you see real estate investors right now should be focusing? Should they be focusing inside of uh, more single family housing? Should they be focused more like apartment complexes and like bigger bigger apartment complexes or smaller you know ten unit places? Is there any type of thinking about like what types of asset classes inside of real estate are going to make the most sense? Sure. In a rising interest rate environment, you don't want to shoot for the single family home because the, 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 the pool of potential buyers is declining. And as that pool of potential buyers is declining, the pool of potential renters is increasing. And so, and, and, and so of course, that, that leads us to want to own rental property. But why would I want to own a single family home if the value is not necessarily being driven by a lot of transactional volume, it is being driven by rental valuation. And, and, and historically, single family homes don't have the greatest um, cap rates. If you were to try and apply a cap rate to a single family home, it, it doesn't really work. Um, and, and so beyond that, when you own a single family home, you have 100% risk to vacancy loss. And that is one of the key concerns that you have in a stagflationary environment. As inflation is, is eating away at people's disposable income, as unemployment is rising and wages are freezing, you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket and have that tenant lose their job and bail on you. Now you have 100% vacancy. So you mitigate that by having a higher density. And um, Two to four units is is great from the uh, perspective that you get a 30-year loan on that property and you have the ability to um, amortize that that debt service over a longer period of time. Um, And when you you move up from five units and higher, your um, interest rate will go up and your amortization period will go down, therefore increasing your monthly debt service, but you're further mitigating your vacancy loss by having a higher density of tenant. Excellent. And, and how is that? How is that different for us uh, than in any other type of market? Is it purely because of the fact that with a single family inside of a stagflation economy, um, that your uh, your ability to find a new renter potentially could be more difficult at the price point that you need to to be able to handle your debt servicing? Well, um, what what makes it kind of unique is that um, like 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 water seeks seeks gravity will cause water to flow, and market direction will cause money to flow. And as you see asset class destruction, um, you know because who wants to buy a bond at three percent when you know yesterday when today it was three and a half percent? You just got killed. Um, so the idea of investing in stocks when you're watching the stock market having a really hard time and PE valuations contracting and trying to become a stock picker that's identifying whether or not you want consumer cyclicals or you want energy or you want utilities, you know, where do you want to put your money? It's difficult in this environment. <clears throat> a lot of money will just simply flow to real estate and it will become a safe haven and that will drive valuations up as much as rents. Okay, so it's it's also part of what I'm hearing you say too is that it's also part of like consumer or investor psychology, which yeah, is some, like there's some yield. panic going on in the market. There will be like somewhat of a panic going on. People are going to be looking like what's conservative, 
And then in that sense, yeah, it's going to be seeking yield. Yeah, going to be seeking like a yield of like, what can I actually get? And here with a with a single family home, we'd say, well, maybe I don't have I don't have the appreciation upside necessarily that I'd otherwise be looking for to really be able to justify the numbers. And so therefore I'd be wanting to get into something that's going to be like a, a 10 unit or larger density uh, type of play uh, purely because of the, the yields there are going to be stronger for me. And there, people are going to view that as a safer yields over time and say like an investing in a bond or something or declining yeah, stock. Market. Yeah. Yep. Because it's a tangible asset, number one. Number two, it's an appreciable asset. Um, and, and and number three, there's a safe yield. So it, it's kind of checking all the boxes of the port in a storm. Do you do you see any um, economic conditions for us that are on the horizons that would be counterfactual to that thesis and say, like, say, well, if these conditions were to produce themselves, that we would see like a declining real estate market? Uh, and we would we would be because I think everybody right now is kind of in that place, right? We're like, well, if I know my prices are going to stay set or they're going to appreciate, great. I'm just going to sit, hold, have my low LTVs, and collect my rental checks, and then I'm just going to ride out the storm until like I'm sure of like what's going to happen. But but what happens if my pricing goes down? Or I think you might say to that like, who cares if pricing goes down? Because as long as you can cover your existing debt service with your rents, then it shouldn't matter. Um, but perhaps you'd be better served in liquidating some of your single family homes and rolling them into a larger, higher density uh, play that would give you some more security in this type of market. Is there any thinking you have in that area of counterfactuals or repositioning and strategy? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's both. Um, counterfactuals would be in the event that we were to see, um, a, 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 for example, uh, Russia pulls out of Ukraine. Um, there's a policy change in the Biden administration toward uh, domestic oil production. We solve the energy part of the equation, or we see that it's going to be solved in the not near term because you just don't flip a switch to make refineries refine and oil rigs drill. Um, you have a reopening of the of the of Shenzhen province in China, and they're producing goods at the rate they were prior to COVID. I mean, these would all be signs that would indicate that we're going to solve the supply side of the uh, demand problem or the uh, supply side of the inflation problem. And if you remove the inflation problem from the scenario, you could be left with a regular recession. And then in a recession, you have that playbook, right? But um, so there's the counterfactual. And in regards to your question about repositioning, um, I'm absolutely a proponent of repositioning. Um, and you probably should have been doing that last year, not this year, but later to late than never, because I don't like carrying all my eggs in one basket. I like diversity. I like density. Awesome. Um, great. Charles, what what else is going to be important to us, uh, for us to know um, I was just reading through Brendan's comment here. It says the trick is getting them to perform or being able to foreclose and recruit more. I think he's answering Leah's question on notes. Uh, we have some, a lot of people in here that are in like the note business say, and I think yeah. it really just, it, I think in my understanding of that is when we look inside of like how notes would play into this, it's really when you're buying a note, what you're really buying is the, as the asset that is, that underlies the note, because at the end of the day, that's what you're taking on. And then it's like, great. Would you want that asset? Uh, and can you make that, can you make the cash flows work by repositioning your note? But do you really want the underlying asset? If you don't want that really the underlying asset, then the note doesn't make sense to be able to purchase. Um, I don't know. Do you dabble much in the note space at all? Well, um, it's interesting because when I started in the business, um, the office I worked in was, I had a, a phenomenal trend setting broker um, that uh, started selling real estate when he was 18. 
And by the time I met him, he was in his mid forties. So he had operated during the seventies and um, as a uh, tool to getting some of his deals to close, he chose to take his commission in the form of notes. And so this guy talked about how, um, you know, notes provided him with a very stable source of uh, uh, revenue during the late seventies and early eighties, um, just from the deals that he closed. And then as those properties appreciated and the sellers resold, he would get his notes repaid and, you know, et cetera. Um, but he always wanted to keep the money on the note. He, he wanted to ask the new buyer if they wanted the note, uh, wanted him to carry because as long as you said, as long as you want the asset. So as long as that asset is appreciating, why wouldn't you want the note? Yeah, there you go, Lee. I hope that's helpful for you inside of the analysis uh, that you were looking for uh, that you post stuff in the chat. Um, great, Charles. So what I'm understanding from, from you here today is to say, hey, listen, you know, if you're if you're in single family homes or you're in notes right now and you're wanting to get something that uh, potentially can give you some more stability uh, because of increasing the number of renters um, that you'd be able to pull from in a potentially uncertain economy that you'd say, hey, you might want to liquidate those, 1031 exchange it, roll it into a higher density type of structure um, that you would um, you'd want to do that to be able to mitigate some of your downside risk. Um, and that we should see from the type of economy we're coming into that absent some type of play that says, hey, we're going to solve some of the supply chain issues. China's going to come back online and we're going to increase our energy production um, into it. Now, well, we play it, play it. You're going to be safer if you're into an asset class that has a higher density with more renters in it um, and that you're not going to be losing out one way or the other. Like there's not going to, you wouldn't expect there to be any types of like massive appreciation like we'd seen in the prior years. And, oh, it's definitely single family homes or it's going to be inside of apartments. But hey, in the single family home racket, like you're not really having the same type of yields anymore with it because of the the, the inability for rental prices to increase uh, as fast in inside of a single renter. Uh, whereas like inside of a, maybe an apartment complex, we have a pool of renters, you're able to be able to make that um, happen a little easier. Where did I miss some of the analysis in here about well, how you, you would calculate um, the, the only thing I would add to this is the, the, the impact that government policy can have as we, as you were talking about oil and energy and et cetera. It, it reminded me that also during the eighties, the commercial side did very, very well because of the fact that we had the um, accelerated depreciation tables that were, you know, make, makers was later replaced by acres. And because you could accelerate the depreciation on commercial buildings, that asset class did exceptionally well in that period as well. But since we don't have makers, we now have acres and it's, de it's depreciated on a, you know, a, more, a longer period of time. Um, and I do not see business formation, new business formation, keeping pace or exceeding that of household formation. <clears throat> I'm kind of pushing commercial real estate uh, from the office, retail, et cetera, to this side. And, and, and elevating residential real estate as an investment on this side, on the commercial side. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what you see in the commercial space? Because the I think a lot of people that I've, I've talked to have been like, hey, well, I really like my commercial real estate because the huge property, so I get all of the all of this appreciation into it. I don't, I'm not 100% clear about like where the accelerated appreciation is different um, inside of like an apartment complex versus a commercial property. Um, and also, uh, if you could touch on with that, too, um, about like when you're having economies that have like inflationary pricing, uh, but but potentially, you know, wages, uh, wages are going to 
struggle to be able to keep up um, with overall, would you see that like retail spaces, like the strip malls um, and the retail outlets and stuff like that actually struggling, those stores being struggling to be able to stay in business because people just can't afford uh, extra items. Like their, their paycheck gets eaten up with their increase in rent, their gas and their food. Right. So you have demand destruction, which is caused by the increase in, in pricing inflation. And then the counter measure to inflation is increasing the interest rates. And when you increase the interest rates, you're creating demand destruction by, by, by tightening the availability of capital. And so when you're running a business, capital is the lifeblood of your, of your business. If you don't have access to capital, you can't, and if the cost of capital is too high, it becomes very difficult to expand your business, to create that second location, to lease a larger footprint than what you have currently. And would you would you foresee then inside of the commercial space that those those strip buildings or like those retail outlet types of stores would would struggle or like the same vein as like office spaces right like well will there be many new businesses well that's probably tough to say when you're we're, we're like business growth would definitely slow right right um, right do we have any insight do you have any insight on like what could happen into like re, like large scale retail like Hobby Lobbies and you know those kinds of like stores like the real estate behind those stores as well as maybe like in office spaces. Yeah, it's it's a really unique period of time because we have the argument going on right now about work from home versus work from the office when it comes to the office space. Then on the retail side, we have brick and mortar versus online. And and so, it, you know, there's such a, a battle going on in the commercial space right now that unless you're in a market where you know, you just know that population is going to grow no matter what, I'd be really worried about commercial on the office and retail side. Yeah. So really it's your, your, it sounds like you're really, you're like your fundamentals to your analysis go where the population is growing. If you're going where the population is growing, whether it's going to be in the residential areas, you should see, be able to see those prices be able to, to hold for you or increase in terms of rental or simultaneously with inside of what's happening inside of the any of the commercial spaces with foot traffic through the stores. That if you're not seeing more people and you're not sure that there's going to be more people going in there in the next uh, few years, that hey, that could, that's potentially pretty risky because you the other forces could eat away, uh, eat away at you. Yeah, population growth is what has driven my decision for all three of the markets I've operated in, San Diego, Las Vegas, and the Triangle here in North Carolina. That's Excellent. factor number one. Factor number one, population growth. Um, awesome. That, that's awesome, Charles. Um, is there anything else that's important for us to, to cover um, in, in this discussion before we open up the floor a bit for some Q&A? Uh, one last investment idea, and it's not in real estate. And I'm pleased I'm not a stockbroker and I don't trade commodities for the public. But um, I do like silver. I think that silver has been artificially uh, subdued through government central banks unloading millions of tons of ounces or millions of tons and ounces. And as we move toward a more sustainable energy platform, we will need to really increase the number of solar panels that are produced. And silver is a key component in producing solar panels. And it's not just a store of value like it was in the past. It's now going to have a much higher industrial purpose than it has in the past. And if you were to look at uh, you know, the stock market, you were to look at commodities, 
things like lumber and copper have fluctuated very, very dramatically based on supply and demand and, 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 and just players in the market. Gold has been flat. Stocks have been declining. Silver is actually doing pretty decent. So just a little you know, thing to tuck away, a little hedge. There you go. Beautiful, man. I'm, I'm always a huge fan of something that has like some stored value, but also practical purposes. Makes me feel like there's at least more than one out besides uh, it to, to that asset for how many things have to go wrong before I lose money, which is typically how I think through my investing. Uh, that goes into it. So awesome. Awesome that you're, you're um, looking at the same thing. I'll have to take a look into silver. I haven't, I haven't thought about it through the lens of uh, what's happening inside of green energy, um, but that would make a ton of sense, right? As we're positioning more and more inside of wanting to, um, well, I think everybody's got a, like a pretty bad taste in their mouth about like the dependence upon uh, gas and oil and how much, how, how one country or one set of circumstances now can push everything in the world to be in chaos to some degree, um, or at least for a few countries, it can be, it can feel chaotic uh, and wanting to, to get off and have some more independence on that. Um, so Brendan, if you wanted to uh, uh, come on and ask your, it sounds like you had a question for, for Charles here um, about, uh, about silver, silver mines. Yeah, what do you think about miners? Is it possible that they have stocks that are beaten down with uh, the recent bloodbath that may be a good uh, a good buy? It, you know, it's very possible. Um, I don't um, invest in um, the uh, iShares of silver. Um, I actually invest in physical silver. I like to have a tangible, you know, piece of metal in my hand. Um, so I've got, you know, I've got pounds of it stashed away. I can't tell you where. Um, but with regards to um, the idea of investing in miners, I, I know that Warren Buffett bought an entire silver mine. He's very bullish on the concept as well. So you'd want to investigate the the, the viability and the and the, and the uh, profitability of an individual miner before you made an investment decision. Yeah, that's like investing in like an individual like oil and gas world, right? Versus like right. investing. Like, wow, you know, you really got to know a lot about that industry to invest down in something at like, you know, per unit productivity of an individual right. asset. So I, I would be, I'd say like, that's like, um, that's usually where I've seen a lot of times in the past, Charles, I don't know if it's been your experience, but one, some of the, some of the richest guys like I ever met, you know, years ago when I was doing my initial foray into the world of money, I always talked about like making sure that you stay inside of your lane whatever your lane is going to be. Right. And it's Absolutely. like the moment you try to go too far out of your lane, it's like, are you really an expert in that <laughs> asset class? Uh, and I get it? ideas thrown at me all the time. How about this? What about this? What about that? I'm like, you know what? I do what I do and I know what I do. Yeah, that's right. And if you know what you do well enough, you can almost make money in any market, right? If you can just know really one asset class well enough, you're like, All right, great. Let's reposition the strategy that we're going to use for that asset like you were talking before. Great. Exactly. So these are apartments until they need to become condos, until those condos need to become apartments again. You know, and whatever way we're going to whatever way we're going to go through that 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 piece of it. Um Bruno saying that mining is definitely out of my lane. Out of my lane too, man. I can't swing a pickaxe. You couldn't get me into one of those things to be able to do that. Um, great, guys. Any other questions here that we have uh, for Charles on deck for us? Um, Charles, I was wondering too, with, with any of the other like investing that you're doing inside of, um, are, you, are you investing at all inside of markets right now? Or are you holding your money inside of assets like real estate and silver or potentially like other physical assets? The only other physical assets I'm, I'm acquiring are actually business assets. 
And, and what I mean by that is I've been, I've been going through the process of more business formation, um, expanding the scope of my businesses, buying heavier equipment and more equipment for my businesses, because I believe that during a recession, that's what I want to expand. You know, I want to take market share from the competition when they're on their heels. So I made sure that I was fully funded and, and sitting on cash when this happened so that I could take advantage of low interest rates, buy new equipment, bring on new hires, get them trained. And then as demand destruction forces other people that are overpricing out of the market, then I'll pick up their market share. Great. That's awesome. So it sounds like you have some good capitalization strategy coming into being able to uh, be able to swing that and be able to hold on to what you need to do to wait until everybody else falls off, falls out of the market. That's awesome. Well done. Um, any, any, other, um, any other pieces come to mind for you in terms of when we're going into this type of economy of, of what's uh, really important for people? Are there a particular, um, uh, do, you, do you recommend and uh, like any particular strategies of saying like, hey, well, you know, you'd be better off right now to be able to have and to gather as much cash as you can and like yes. pull as much cash as you possibly can to be able to say, get when the blood's in the streets. You're going to want to have that cash. The cash isn't going to be available later. You got to pull it now and just pay the interest on it because you just need to be sitting on to have that much cash if you had to pull interest on it. Yeah, I would say that that's a good point. Um, you often hear two very contradictory statements. One statement is cash is king. The other statement is inflation is the cash killer. So what are you supposed to do in an environment of stagflation, right? That you, you, you can't have it both ways. So in, in, in my opinion, if you can't find a solid good deal, if you don't, don't buy just to buy. If you don't find a solid deal, go ahead and keep it in cash. Because if you can put it into a six-month instrument that's earning you, you know, slightly less than the rate of inflation, so what? At the end of the day, when there is a buying opportunity, you're going to have dry powder. Yeah. Then you need that dry powder and that dry powder isn't available in the future, right? It's only available now, right? So, well, I call it, uh, the way I've, I've talked about it too, is like, it's like, this is cash insurance. Like you pay insurance to hedge against risk, but it also creates opportunity and that like, you'll need the money six months from now. So what if you end up having to pay, you know, uh, 3% on that money or 4% on that money to be able to sit on it for that period of time. When you're talking about economic time periods where you're having huge price reductions into what assets can be bought at that time period, you're going to have massive gains that are going to come up, but it's only going to come up for you for people that actually have cash because everybody's going to be so scared that 95% of the market's going to tell you, you shouldn't buy anything right now. And the banks are going to say, we're not lending, right? And, or they're not lending at rates that are going to be attractive, right? They're going to be lending to some other type of investment portfolio investment objective that really isn't doesn't make, make any sense at that point. Um, at least that, that's what the thinking is that I've heard from other people. Does that resonate with you or do you have a different opinion on, on that? Um, you know, I served in the army for six years and, 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 you know, when you fire your weapon, you're taught ready, aim, fire, right? I mean, that's the process mentally. You're doing that when you're investing, follow a similar philosophy. Ready is have that capital available, have the money that you need to act when it's time to act. Aim is be searching for that investment opportunity and fire is pull the trigger when you find it. And in that moment of chaos where everybody is saying, fire, 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 you know, ready, ready, ready. They're not following through on the entire process. You've got to be the level head in the room. 
And, and right now, it's, uh, right now, are we really in a ready stage that it's like, hey, get yourself as ready as possible and start aiming by like looking, continue to look at deals, but like maybe wait to fire until something really makes sense. Um, I, I, I wouldn't wait to fire because waiting can lead to paralysis. You know, analysis paralysis. Uh, you, you need to have your, your, your ready is having the capital. Your aim is having your goal defined and looking for that product. If you've already defined your goal and you find that product that matches that goal, pull the trigger. Yeah, that's right. You're that's fine. Right to get better, you're never going to act. Yeah. One thing I just want to highlight for everybody that you mentioned here is like have that goal well defined, right? I think a lot of times where I see people that can go astray, right, is that they're just searching, but they're like, and I ask them like, what are you searching for? What is that actually going to? How do you know when you found the right deal, right? So having those goals well defined, and if you don't know those, that's probably guys where you would you want to talk to somebody who's experienced like Charles holistically with what's going on. I don't have any uh, other type of relationship with Charles besides just having him here today and wanting to introduce you guys to Charles. Um, so it's all big boys club on who's doing what with business after we get off the phone um, here today. But somebody like I can tell you that somebody that's like Charles from I'm gathering from here today could probably help you to find out what are goals that make sense, right? With that investing. And then it'll probably say, hey, I either have opportunities that make sense for that or I don't, right? To be able to help you um, help you get into that place. Charles, is that fair to say? I didn't want to put you out there uh, too no, far. It's, it's perfect. Um, I can't tell you how many people call me up and say, um, you know, hi, I, I read about you. I heard about you. I whatever. Um, I'm looking for a deal. Yeah. And what I, is that? Deal? You please define what a deal is to you. Well, I don't know. Just find me a good deal. No, you <laughs> right. need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's like, what does that actually look like? You know, in, in terms and and if they don't know what that is, then that's where some good education comes back in. Right. Because right? I can never make you happy if you don't know what you want. Yeah, that's right. I tell my girlfriend that all the time. You know, <laughs> ah, just kidding. You know, uh, I make her happy all the time. She loves me unconditionally, I'm sure. Or, or whatever. I don't know. I will see. But guys, thank you so much, everybody, for uh, joining in here today. Um, Charles, thank you so much for taking some of your valuable time uh, to spend with us. Um, if anybody is looking to uh, reach out to you, Charles, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Um, you can give me a call. Uh, you can email me. The, the, the um, information is on my website. It's Reformation Asset Management. Uh, and we're in Durham, North Carolina. Excellent, guys. So go check out uh, Charles's website there. Make sure to connect up with them. These guys that are being able to have like that are like Charles that have um, like integrated deal flow, right? Where they're talking about saying, like, hey, we got uh, almost like wholesale access to like what deals are going to be coming on the market. Sounds like Charles has done a lot of heavy investment inside of actually doing things inside of the development stage. I'm sure he's waiting for uh, waiting for the right opportunity to start using all that equipment that he's positioned himself well for uh, to be in the pricing. It might be it might be something that you can do immediately with them. But somebody who's taken this much thought, I want to underline this for everybody. When you're looking at who are the operators that you want to be doing business with, the people that are showing that they're tactically thinking thinking in terms of like six months to a year, capital management into what they're doing with their rates, thinking about development in a time where everybody else isn't, right? To be able to say, we're going to take advantage of it when these conditions happen. Can talk to you about like macroeconomic issues in a way that makes sense. It says these will inevitably drive to this circumstance. We don't know when, but it's inevitably going to drive to this circumstance. And that's where we're going to make money and swoop into it. Those are the types of people that you want to keep in your sphere one, you don't know if you're going to do business with them, but two, you're going to learn a hell of a lot 
from just being able to stay in touch with how they're thinking through the problems and how they're positioning themselves. Because as you're, as you're vetting additional operators to be able to increase your deal flow and your deal flow is everything, right? As you're vetting more operators, increase your deal flow, you're going to start to see that there is a wide degree of how much an operator will know and to how much thinking they've gone into, where are they going to be profitable? And the more thinking that's gone into where they're going to be profitable, when you're looking at like, hey, this deal is going to give me an eight cap with Charles, or I can get an eight cap over here with Bob. Well, how do you distinguish between the two? You're going to go with the guy who looks like he's thought through the most scenarios and left himself the most outs right? The most ways that can come out of it. So I would just encourage you to start looking at anybody that you're looking at to be able to bring into your world and looking at their deals, not just about the deal. Try to think a little bit more holistically about like, if I were in that business or how do really successful people in that business think, right? And I can tell you, they have to be thinking at least at all at the levels that we've been talking about here today in this call. There's a ton more to be able to go into what really goes into it, right? But they need to be thinking at least that level to know that they're an A player um, coming into it. So Charles, thank you so much with giving a little bit of a window into how you think and letting me just pick your brain uh, with questions and, and the analysis. I have to um, congratulate you on, on the place that you've gotten so far here in your life and building your business um, and your sophistication um, that, you've, that you've built into how do you think through what your businesses are. I have every confidence that you're going to have amazing success here in the future, especially during this economic climate. And I appreciate you taking the time here with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And I enjoyed it immensely. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Go reach out. Uh, Charles dropped in his website there and his email address and phone number right there into the chat. Grab a hold of that. Um, email Charles, go to his website, um, sign for his pieces and stay in touch with them. Thank you guys. Have a great day. 